This is Game Theory, our podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making. Hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, rankings are dumb. In the first week of December, Michelin revealed the California restaurants that it deemed worthy of a star in 2022. And the NCAA College Football Playoff Committee named the four teams who will be eligible to compete for the national championship. For the restaurants boasting a Michelin star, the accolade is elite marketing opportunities and a lifelong accomplishment. But many chefs find the star a burden wrought with pressure. And in college football, random writers across the country impact how we watch the sport in such a way that it can skew our reality of the game. But it can also impact which games we watch. So why do we care so much? Why must we receive care at a hospital that someone else says is the best? Why would we choose the University of Virginia over the University of California? Why must everything be ranked? And welcome to episode 5-0, that's 50 with a 5, of Game Theory, a podcast about competition strategy and decision making. And Chris... When we thought about doing this in the middle of a pandemic, and then we kicked it down the down the alley for months, and then started it, I was like, well, let's let's try to do 150 of these, which should take three years. And at this pace, we'll be at 150 um, in many moons, many, many, many moons from now. But 50 is a pretty good benchmark for us. I never thought we'd get here. Yeah, it's not so bad. It feels pretty good to be 50. I I guess it's true what they say: 50 is the new 20. By which I mean 50 is the new five, by which I mean we still have the quality of podcasters who have only done like five episodes that only our parents have listened to. Right. But nonetheless, we appreciate everybody for sticking with us. And for those of you who have joined recently, welcome to the game, the theory, the game theory <laughs> podcast about competition strategy and decision making. 50 episodes. Wow. Yeah, 50 is not. Uh, well, they, I guess like 53 technically with some bonuses and stuff. in there, But this is like the 50th real episode. And today we thought, you know, we've gotten some feedback recently that and we're trying to mix it up. We do the fraudster stuff, which we has been really great. We're going to do more dating stuff here and there because that's just a fun game that a lot of people like to play. And we do the math episodes every now and then with like true game theory. But we need a little bit more off the cup every now and then. So we're going to do one of those today, um, which we can get into. You can find all us wherever podcasts are found. If you love us and you don't force your colleagues to listen to us, the best way to suggest it to them is to give us a five-star uh, rating on Apple Podcasts, which we appreciate. We Ratings. are on Audible. We've got a question about that. We are on Audible. There is a way to yes, do it. Yes, we are. I don't remember how. There is a way to rate books and things. And technically, this is a book on Audible, but it's pod- I, don't, I don't really understand how that works. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to uh, to an old colleague of mine, buddy of mine, Rich, uh, pointing out that we are on Audible. People can comment on Audible and give us ratings, which uh, we really appreciate. And of course, that's I, I think that's what we're going to talk about today, right? Isn't it? Nick? Yeah, we are going to talk about ratings and rankings and how they used to be important and now they become incredibly stupid and almost hurtful for a lot of different things. We're going to use college football as a bit of a jumping off point, but then we're going to, it's a whole thing. Like we can get into the bullshit of this in colleges, hospitals, uh, recently in, in my line of work, senior housing, which is, we'll talk about th- those ratings are in some ways good in other ways, maybe not. Um, and of course we're going to talk about food and movies. Those are rated as well. These are, these are, they're like cartels running what's in our lives. So we're going to talk about all of that. And I think, you know, if I had been more prepared off the top of my head, I think I would have rated the top five Christmas presents you gave me. Do you need my wish list for this year? Actually? Yeah, that'd be really great. Yeah. I was going to get you a kid. We're recording this in early December and, uh, as, as you guys know, Nick is a person of, of very expensive taste. 
He's a, he's a person of expensive ex, expensive interests. I don't know if the taste is there quite yet. Yeah, uh, fake it till you make it, man. I mean, what do you want? What do you want me to say? I uh, well, one of the corollaries of that is that uh, you are a very generous gift giver. Mm-hmm. You 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 look at a lot of expensive things, a lot of well advertised things, and they end up almost always being like baller gifts. Yeah, for example, from the Washington D.C. ASPCA, you can rescue a kitten as a gift for two hundred dollars. Yeah, that's that's an excellent gift. I, I mean, I don't, I don't. <laughs> I don't care about the cat, but <laughs> yeah. rescuing animals is a, is a humane thing to do. It's a lovely thing to do. So yeah, if you feel like giving a donation, but yeah, uh, I need your gift wish list because oh. I mean, time's ticking. That's true. I guess we could say that this episode is brought to you by, but it isn't. It's brought to you by us. So this would be a good time to have uh, went out and found some advertisers for gift giving, but we just didn't do that. No, we're not good. Yeah, it is brought to you by us. And frankly, <laughs> player three, you're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. We shout out to all the people that email us. You can do that. It's all available where it should be available. If you're mad, feel free to correct us. Um, yeah, let's, you know, reach out. We love, we love that kind of stuff. So we're talking about ratings and rankings and, and things like that. We are obviously the number one ranked game theory podcast hosted by white dudes in their thirties in the world that speak English. Cause there's a German one, by the way. Wow. Yeah. But I don't think that that's what this is. I can't tell because it's in German. Transcontinental rivalry. Mm, that's true. <laughs> A lot yeah, of jokes if, uh, to go off there. A lot of jumping off jokes. I'm going to leave those alone, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we, we, we want enough wars that we don't have to worry about learning German. True. And uh, if those guys are listening to us, uh, guten tag. Guten tag. Um, okay, so we're going to start with college football because it's a great way to explain the value and then the stupidity of rankings. Every year, and the college basketball is the same, and now there are other college sports that do this. Every year in college football, since I believe essentially the 20s and 30s and then the Associated Press started taking it over, but it became a really big deal in the 50s and 60s when college football became more and more and more and Notre Dame and Alabama and all that. The, they would ask the writers who covered the sport of college football, so maybe they covered a team, maybe they covered a league, maybe they covered a, a region or whatever, to give their opinion of what's going on in their region, and then they would compile the votes and make a top 25 list for the top 25 teams in college football. This list is around today. It has been challenged by a similar poll that asks coaches to vote. It's been challenged by a computer logarithm, and it has been challenged by a committee of gods who kind of just decide what happens in college Including football. the artist formerly known as Condoleezza Rice. I mean, she's still known as Condoleezza Rice, but she used to be on this committee. <laughs> yes, exactly. So they, they rank all of these teams. What we find out now is that where the, the list served a general purpose for people who were in Syracuse so that everyone in the Syracuse area who maybe covered UConn or Penn State say, hey, Syracuse is good. They used to call Syracuse the beast from the east. They could argue with people who cover the southwest region and talk about Arizona, Arizona State, Southern California, UCLA, and they could compile this list and say, here are the top 25 teams in college football, as voted on by the experts who know this stuff. Then the internet happens, and we can all see everything all the time. And this became this top 25 thing became just a way to kind of poke fun or feel really important, like having a vote. And then it became a way to kind of convolute TV ratings, which is what we're going to talk about now. So this year's poll is a great example of why, and I promise we're going to get into the dirty parts of like Michelin stars and like the U.S. News and World Report college rankings and things like that. But so, Chris, some interesting things happened in this year. I remember making fun of Notre Dame for being a preseason top five, and then they were garbage, and then now they're top 25. Uh, you see teams go up and down. So, like, let's talk about what happened this year. Well, yeah, first of all, the Notre Dame is perpetually overrated crowd who has been in hibernation for the last several seasons as Notre Dame has dominated everybody except for like the elite, elite teams. Uh, They have done a great job of shutting the hell up Mm. for the past several years, but this season they got to sing full-throated a return ballad 
as Notre Dame fell flat on its face. As you said, ranked in the top five by all these sports writers and people who are generating content. Right. And really the goal of these ratings now is to get people to talk about things when there aren't actual sports games going on. You know, football games are only 12 or 13 a year, depending on which team you're looking at. And so you have to fill the spaces in between. Saturday's blocked off. They start playing a couple of times a week later in the season. But really, there's a lot of dead space. But the problem is we have a 24-hour news cycle. I mean, football is becoming a more global game, so people are all over the place. So they need content to talk about when it's not you know game time in America. Right. So people put together these rankings. And, and this season, uh, Notre Dame is, a, is probably one of the bigger examples of a team that was ranked in one place and finished in a completely different one. Mm-hmm. And the end-of-the-year rankings have a lot more information. They have a season's worth of work that will inform the rankings, whereas at the beginning of the year, it's all pure guesswork. Uh, But really, it just highlights how stupid and pointless these rankings are. There is one counterexample this year. I mean, a lot of the teams that were rated highly stayed kind of high, and a lot of the teams that were rated in the middle kind of stayed in the middle. Uh, But there was only one team this season that started the year and finished the year with the same ranking, according to the sports writers. Nick, can you guess who that team is? Uh, I might... Gut instinct was to say something from the SEC, like maybe like an LSU. Yeah, I mean, that's not a bad guess because they're always ranked somewhere in there because, yeah. again, that drives the most content. But the team is Utah. Utah right. started the year ranked number seven. They ended the year ranked number seven. They had some tough losses. They had some great wins. And they're the only team that the writers, you could say, I guess, guessed correctly how they would finish <laughs> in the rest of the year. Right. And, and as I said, the college football is kind of a unique example because there are so many teams and so much content and so much information. And there, a lot of like history goes into these rankings. Like Alabama is always going to be ranked highly because they've always been good for right. decades. Notre Dame is always going to be on this list because they've always been good for decades. And then on the converse, teams like Kansas are not going to get ranked at the start of the season. Teams like Wyoming are not going to get ranked at the start of the season, even if they're really good. Tulane's an example of that. They weren't ranked to start the year. They had a historic great season and now they're bound for a major bowl uh, in a clash with USC who's yeah. a top ranked blue blood yeah so so Tulane is a great example of the purpose of this poll because now even with the internet maybe one doesn't pay attention to Tulane or Appalachian State and it can get people to kind of give recognition to one of these things but more importantly than that I think that Notre Dame is a great example of this it's to get ratings for games that are on the schedule so Notre Dame uh, a number of years ago scheduled a a series of competitions against Ohio State two blue blood programs very famous midwestern football etc etc fine but if they're both ranked in the top five and it's the first week of the season that's a big deal if Notre Dame is 17 and Ohio State is two that's still a pretty big deal but it's a much bigger deal if they're both in the top five and as a result of that you can kind of see uh, a lot of games that like, wow, this game matters. There are two ranked teams where at the end of the day, it, it doesn't really matter. So like if Penn State plays Michigan and one of them is seven and 10 or in another year, they're not ranked at all and they're playing each other. These, these arbitrary writers are kind of just deciding who's ranked and who's not. And I think that Notre Dame is a great example because they were average for the majority of the season, barely hanging on. Then they won a bunch in a row and now they're like, well, they're a little above average. They have the same record as like 30 other teams in the country. So now that number like, my alma mater and your, your alma mater have the same record. Yeah, which is really strange because that's a, that's like a really good year for, for Ole Miss. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. a real down season. It's a rebuilding year for, for my team. Right. Of but it, th- I think this speaks to just like this confluence of factors at play here for our, our obsession in America with trying to figure out like who's the best, who's number one. Right. 
the fact that there are so many college football teams, there are so few games. I mean, they only play, as I said, about a dozen games a year. They don't all play each other, so you have to have some way to like compare the teams. And then we talked about this on the show before, but I think this also highlights like the lack of regionality that college football has now with like the playoff system to determine the national champion, the fact that we have the internet so anybody could watch basically any game at any time for the right price. Everything is much more interconnected now than it was you know, 80, 90, 100 years ago when people were talking about, well, our local boys are as good as anybody in the country. Well, I mean, times are different now. And right. so I guess you have to have that kind of comparator for people who are who have demand for the 24-hour sporting news cycle. But really, I mean, the, this kind of takes away some of the regionality of, yeah, of college football. Like, like Ohio State, Michigan is a major, major regional thing. But it's also a national thing now because they have these little numbers next to their name. Right. And like the rewards for having those little numbers next to their name could be major bowls and millions of dollars and television coverage and lots of entertainment for people and whole like week long events that come along with these major bowls. Yeah. So the, the obviously very high stakes and, and you know, the, the ratings, the rankings, people's judgment decisions basically are a major factor in transforming what was like a regional local thing with, you know, derbies between amateur students right, right. into this major economic powerhouse where like amateurism is gradually fading away in favor of this like pay for play model. And yeah, we're going to, so there, there, there's, there, there's a lot going on, but, but you know, I, I think this is a really good topic for, for the episode because the ratings really are a driving fact. They're not just like an ancillary yeah. result of college football teams playing games. I right. Mean, they drive a lot of That's like where the, the narrative is. and broader discussion. That's exactly. where the money is. That's where it's, the money is. So what it does is like, say for example, um, like spending time you're in DC, I, where there's a bunch of transplants, but I, I mean, I was in Philly a lot of Penn State and Notre Dame people in Philly, but essentially not, not enough Penn State and Notre Dame people in Philly for anyone to really care about college football. It's a pro football town, just like Boston and New York and, and, and a lot of other major cities in the U.S. So what the little numbers do by the side of the names is tell you who to pay attention to on a Saturday when you want to watch a ball game. They put it then on TV and it drives ratings, which is sort of artificially inflating the numbers. And now let's get into other stuff here because they're not the only ones doing that. College football is just a part of the college system that does that. The U.S. News and World Report, the college rankings that they've been doing for years and years and years, those are really interesting. Did you know that a, a research done by the Wall Street Journal revealed that the thing that, that drives how many applicants a school gets, how many good applicants a school gets, and therefore how highly it's rated is how expensive it is? Really? Yes. So if it's, for example, people think that Duke is worth 80 grand a year or whatever, therefore it must be really, really good to go to school. And they know Duke. I mean, it's not like you could, like, like Wyoming couldn't pull that shit off, but like Duke can. And the other part of this is the reporting done by the Wall Street Journal found that if you don't want to pay 80, you can just tell them, I don't want to pay 80, I'll give you 40. And a lot of times you'll go back and forth and you can just negotiate tuition. They're literally pulling it out of their ass to go up on that list to get better recruits. That is shocking. Like you can actually just like negotiate. Correct. Tuition. Yep. I, I, the Wall Street Journal reported on this like four or five years ago. They run a new story on it every year or so. No one gives a shit. No one pays attention at all. You can just be like, I'm not paying that shit. That is actually wild. I have some major regrets now. That you said that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, quick, quick sidebar into entertainment. I saw a, uh, I, I saw a post on reddit.com, which by the way, we're active on reddit.com. Well, we're not active on reddit.com. We need to become more active. Yeah, we do. Shout out to John for making our subreddit. Love you, John. Yep. Yeah. Thanks, John. Uh, I, I was uh, I was browsing that hell site the other day, and I saw a post that was a, a nomination for a movie trailer that was the worst aged of all movie trailers, uh, and it was for a movie called Soul Man, 
And it was about this dude who uh, wants to go to Harvard Law School. And he gets into Harvard Law School, and it's wonderful. But then he's reading through, and he finds out, like, it's too expensive. The, the, to, so to, to spoil the plot of the film, it's about a guy who's trying to pay for law school, and he tries to get a scholarship to do it. And it's really gross. I mean, he fully dresses up and tries to, like, put makeup on himself and look like a black man mm. so that he can get a scholarship and, and pay for law school. Wow. So, obviously... Aged horribly, like like that's that's one of the worst movie premises that I've ever heard. But yeah. They're like, oh yeah, man, this is the '80s. This is a different time. Blah blah blah. Wow. Uh, another thing that aged incredibly poorly about that was that he's listing off this like list of expenses for law school. Like you know, it, it, at the inflation and the economy was different and blah blah blah. But he's like listing these costs and he's like, the cost for tuition, seven thousand dollars. Living expenses, nine thousand dollars. And he's like total to or total cost of attending Harvard Law School for three years, fifty two thousand dollars. It's fuck like, out oh my here. god, this is more money than I've ever heard of in my entire life. And now that's like half of tuition at some of the elite universities yes, in America. Correct. Which is, I mean, partially inflation, but also partially this that they know that you want to get there, like tens of thousands of. Also, the other weird thing is that these schools get like thousands of barely or unqualified candidates. And so, like, it's like yep. how many their acceptance rate is so low? Like, yeah, because many people who like realistically, you're not getting into Harvard, but they still apply. You know, I, w- I want to give another shout out to uh, shout out to Mike here. He and I, have, uh, my my buddy Mike, we we've talked about this once before, I think. And, and Nick, I don't know if you know anything about this, but I, I think there's a correlation between this like sharp rise, this huge explosion in the cost of tuition in America, and the premiere of U.S. News and World Report rankings mm. and exclusivity, like as the price goes up, the number of candidates goes up, or the, or the number of applicants also goes up. But then the school, like it, it used to be, the case that like the Harvards and Yales and Dartmouths of the world grew at about the same pace as like the Indianas and the Wyoming's sure. and the Kansas States of the like the, these other universities that are serving different purposes. They grew at kind of the same rate. And then around the time that U.S. News and World Report rankings came out, the elite university, the Ivy Leagues that had big names, lots of you know national recognition, they stopped getting larger and they started getting more expensive. Mm. And that's because one of the factors that goes into this U.S. News and World Report ranking system of the best universities is the percentage of applicants that they deny. So yeah. the mm. more selective the university yep. appears to be, the better its ranking becomes in this system. And so the ranking actually drives not only the cost of tuition, but the school's strategic direction. So instead of continuing to grow and add students and become a larger, healthy institution, they decided, no, we're going to cap this. We're going to remain a specific size, and we're going to craft our image based on selectivity rather than like a robust growth model like other universities do basically everywhere else in America. Yeah, and uh, which is fascinating because it's just better to like keep people out and go up and the prestige, which that's sort of what HBO does in streaming. Like they, what they want is hype and awards. They don't want people's numbers because it's a subscription model, but now Netflix has moved in and now they care a little bit more. But that was sort of like what you're aiming for. And I think that that lends itself to another thing that does something similar to that, which is Rotten Tomatoes, which we'll get into here in a second. Um, but for, for the, the colleges that do this, it's exactly right. It's about exclusivity and how many they deny. So not only are they getting a bunch of unqualified or barely qualified candidates, those people are applying to all of these schools and they get into two or three well all of those other schools get to reject that candidate and then they look more and more exclusive like oh you can't get it here only only seven percent of applicants get in here like well the entire fucking state of california applied and you know of course you had to deny all of them because not all of them were either a a good fit or b a good candidate 
what's fascinating to me, I am full on board with huge portions of the secondary education system are overrated and it's largely bullshit uh, for a lot of reasons. The first is that there's this disingenuous thing that's happening and we, we cited this last, uh, last episode with the Byzantine problem where people, this Byzantine signaling issue where people would like get a degree not to, to learn anything or grab a skill, but just to say that they got a degree. Right, like that's a huge part of this as well. So I, I kind of have my own tier of, co- of colleges. One is elite education. There are school schools, right? And there are yep. 200 of them in the world. There are probably between 70 or less of them on the continent. And like this borderline and there are Venn diagrams or whatever. The number two is like your local school. Like the one that the, the best one that you want to go to that's down the street. For example, um, living in Philly, Lehigh is a great school. Penn State yep. is a great school. Like Drexel's got to be in there with that. Yeah, Drexel's a good school, like things like that, right? And then the third one is the best financial decision for you, right? The one that's yep. like, yeah, and the, the best value educations in America are, it's essentially always BYU. BYU is the best value education in the history of the world. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's Look, not expensive I will never to go credit there. BYU as an institution for anything. So <laughs> you I have to disagree to. with you on principle. Yeah, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to debase myself with right. that. And then the fourth but, category is schools that you go to for fun. That's a vacation, right? So, I mean, of course, like, I'm Arizona sure that Dartmouth State. and Penn are fun. But, like, that's an education, right? Notre Dame is an education school. Like, Ole Miss is the other three, depending on who you are. Like, is it close? Is it a good one that's close for you? Is it good enough? Is it cheap for you? Right? So, like, all of them ha- fall into these various categories. And if you're not going to a school school, then you can just make the best decision for yourself financially, for sure. There's no real reason. Like, you're splitting hairs. Like, should I, do I want to go away to UVA or do I want to go away to Cal? Like, they're the same, essentially. They're essentially the same thing. At Harvard, uh, more than any school in the country, maybe Stanford, a huge portion of what you're paying for is the Rolodex of people that you know when you graduate, being in the club. Which, by the way, shout out to Stanford uh, for producing just oodles and oodles of not only fraudsters, we talked about fraudsters on the show, but also a lot of like high-ranking members of like the Chinese Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thanks for, thanks for that, Stanford. Um, they don't give really a shit. proud of that educational legacy for basically supplying brain power to our largest, most fearsome global competitor. Right. Got, yeah, you got to love them for, for doing that. A lot of these, these foreign scary people are, are uh, educated in America. Like um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was educated in the United States, I think. The, the 9-11 terrorist? I think so. I could be wrong on that. That, so, that sounds right to me. We, yeah. should, we should double check that. Yeah. Player 3, if you could fact check that for us. I'd be I'm pretty cool. sure. But, yeah, it's, it seems to me that uh, yeah, somewhere I feel like I read that yeah. somewhere. Like, I want to say like, and not like an Ivy League school, like, like UVA or William and Mary, some, some, something kind of strange. Anyway, like we've been doing that for a long time. But these ranking systems hurt these schools because then people don't want to apply if you're going in the wrong direction. Like Old Miss is ranked like 110. It's ranked good. It's a good school. It's not that much different than Penn State. It's not that much different than Mississippi State. They're all the same. They're all the, they're all the fucking same. You go there, you learn the school. Like science is science. Maybe your one-on-one is a little different. Maybe the facilities are a little different. But the obsession that we have with these rankings makes you feel like, oh, well, I went to the number three public school in America. Like three and thirty-five are the same, dude. Yeah, it's it's not. It, it, this reminds me of a of a conversation, or I guess uh, I guess something that I read in it was in the introduction of uh, the David Foster Wallace book. Uh, it's uh, everything and more. I think mm, it's his book yeah. about infinity, and it, and it was it was in the foreword to that. I think it. I don't think it was written by him. I think it was written by somebody else. But sure. this guy was saying that he understood David Foster Wallace understood this like educational model, and, and it's you know it it's not that like the Harvards and Yales of the world have students who are just smarter and better than like 
the Indiana State Universities of the world and the Nevadas of the world and whatever else. It's that the the institutions have a different mission. You know, state universities aren't like dumber than Ivy League private you know, religious schools or whatever. They just, they're there to educate like a local group of people. There's this like Midwest kind of basic model of, of education. You have the university that's like blank university. So right. like Indiana university, Iowa university, Kansas, Kansas university. And traditionally, this isn't always true, but traditionally those schools have more of like an education, education bent, like liberal arts, business, uh, I guess a lot of business. like sciences, but not necessarily engineering. Yeah. Pl- yeah. Plenty of business, but like a lot of creativity, like yeah. Iowa, for example, is like the greatest creative writing program, like in the world. Correct. So, so th- that's kind of the, the, I guess the classical education bent of those universities. And then a lot of them come along with like a companion. That's like blank state university, yeah. like Kansas state university. Uh, I guess Purdue would be kind of like an analog there. So like an A&M type of school. Yeah. And those institutions traditionally have more of like an agricultural bent. And that's, you know, in some cases, it's because they were built to service like the local state industry. I mean, like Colorado State is you know historically used to be like Colorado School of Agriculture. Right. Michigan State, similar story. Texas Tech exists specifically because of cotton production well, and, in yeah, Southwest and Texas. A and M stands for Agriculture and Military. No, it does not. It stands for Agricultural and Mechanical. Well, whatever. There's no military. Uh, they, is that a that's okay. a myth? Yeah, yeah. So that that yeah that that's not true. Uh, also, I learned direct from the horse's mouth from a real bona fide Aggie. I, I've seen the ring. They did this a whole lot. They talked about how miserable they were this football season. Like ninety nine percent of the cadets do not enlist in the military. They're just playing dress up for like I don't know four wow. years. It's basically a frat where what? they get cool boots at the end. Jesus, yeah, yeah, that's no, gross. yeah. That's yeah, that's that's a farce. They're, they do weird shit for like no reason. Yeah, that's so, a cult. Anyway, irregardless, um, moving on. <laughs> Yeah, it's it, the, the point here is that these institutions have different historical origins. And yeah. Of course, over time, as a university grows, it gets larger. It accommodates a lot more interests. So, like the University of Kansas has an engineering program, but Kansas State's is like older and more established, and I guess it's a little better. Similar with like a lot of these university of blank and then blank state yeah, university. Yeah, I mean, the the paths tend to converge over time, and and I, I think that's made a lot more pronounced i guess in in the age of the internet where like students basically want like choice they want to be able to go like i want to go to this university because of its name brand name recognition but i want to study this thing that it hasn't always had but i also want to like go have fun away from my parents there are a lot there's a confluence of factors there and and every student's choice is different so like the missions have tended to blend together over time but the point here i guess about how this relates to ratings is that the ratings conflate different sort of historical origins and different purposes of different institutions. Like you're not comparing apples to apples when you do this. And, and even if you divide it up into like, oh, the best private school or the best right. public institution or like the best engineer, even when you're doing that, you're isolating factors, I think, kind of needlessly. And when people pay too much attention to where like this engineering program or that engineering program is like ranked on this list, they're not only giving into the subjective bias that's informed by objective facts, but ultimately the decision-making of like the ranker instead of making a more informed decision based on stuff you mentioned, financial interest, convenience, area of focus, like what kind of overall experience is this going to give me? And so the, so the ratings here are driving like the industry of higher education in America in a way that's not dissimilar to the way that like college football rankings drive the national college football landscape and like a ton of money that goes along with that, obviously, you know, these, these, these judgment calls made by people who are accountable to no one are ultimately like responsible for kind of 
setting the tone for, for what the landscape looks like. And I, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that these are just, these are just the decisions made by people who have a lot of information, but at the ultimate, at, at, at the end of the day, uh, the best decision for like where to attend a college or whether to attend a college at all uh, should be less tied to the rankings and more tied to like personal circumstances. Yeah. I, I mean, and that's, and you have to be intelligent enough or I guess mature enough at a young age to kind of figure that out and make that decision. Like when I transferred to Ole Miss at a community college and I had opportunities to go to schools that are objectively better on this list, but I would rather be a much bigger fish in a much smaller pond, get more hands-on experience, have something that was a little bit more low pressure. I knew that if I like chose to go to Florida or Yukon or Texas, that I could have, it would have been much more difficult and it would, it was not going to be a comfortable situation. I was like, this is an easy, this is an easy base hit right here. Like this is, this is a good situation for me. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's obviously a little bit of scandal to this too. I mean, so in, in September, U.S. News and World Report uh, kind of sparked some controversy mm-hmm. Uh, with its rankings, and so we'll we'll use we'll use an elite uh, you know Ivy League institution as an example. So the first edition of the 2022-2023 best college rankings list had Columbia University, uh, obviously like a well-known, highly you know it's a, it's a world-class institution in New York. Uh, it had Columbia University at ranked at number two, and it was like it it originally debuted in 1988 when these rankings first came out it right. was like number 18 and so they've like steadily been climbing the rankings like ooh we're going to be the best university in the world uh, but this math professor uh, at columbia uh, made a big stink because the university provided faulty data to us news mm-hmm. uh, and they they basically doctored the books to make it look like they were a better university in accordance with us news and world reports like metrics they 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 kind of I don't know if they had like outright falsified information. I don't know if they uh, gave old information, but the but the point is that they they gave faulty data to U.S. News when they were uh, developing the rankings, and so U.S. News incorporated that fact, corrected their rankings, and then Columbia went back to number eighteen, <sighs> where they started in 1988 uh, in response to that, and so that's like this whole big thing, and and really at the end of the day, like that's not going to make. A difference in the lives of students that's not going to change the experience of people who are studying at columbia living in new york right all it does is change the name recognition and uh, for of like the institution and potentially changes the amount of money that they could make it's it's a purely economic thing and like man it just goes to show you how like even when there are objective factors that feed into these ratings the subjectivity and the interests driving the the results of the rankings are just they're enough of a reason to i think to almost basically discount the entire system yeah i i agree with that and i but again like you can see where before the internet and the ability to have access to all of the public information in the history of the world before that relying on experts to help you clarify these things was incredibly important. You could say, just like we, we started out, and the reason I wanted to start with college football is because it's jumping off points. See, like, when nobody talks to each other nationwide and these experts whose job it is to rank things can say, yeah, Caltech, MIT, they're third and fourth in the country. Like, whatever. You're like, okay, that makes me feel a lot better. I can go to this one, I can go to that one, or, or whatever. But when we're splicing between, you know, uh, the University of Wyoming is the fourth best uh, public school engineering program. Like, I don't give a fuck, dude. Like, math is math. But it really screws over the University of Wyoming. And at the end of the day, it's on the people who consume the lists. Like for me, choosing to watch uh, Texas Tech play Indiana because they're both ranked instead of choosing to watch Notre Dame, Ohio State, like that's, I buy into that. I obviously gave the data to the thing that had the number, even though objectively, even in a good year, it's unlikely that those two things are a bigger deal than the other two things. But where this gets really, really kind of interesting to me is where A, they get bad and the, the people that are being ranked notice 
that they're bad. And the other thing is that when it starts to really fuck with people's health and their lives. So U.S. News and, and uh, World Report or whatever it's called, they're... Um, they just started doing senior housing, and I can't really discuss that because of my job. I, I work in that. That f- list and the certification of having a best of a senior housing in your regional market was a really big deal, and I got a peek behind the curtain at the process, and it seems objective. Also, they didn't really rank much beyond the top 25. They just said this is a certified best of this category, best of that category. It's like, that's a good thing. That would make a consumer feel like this is a smart choice, like they were at least certified instead of ranking the top 5,000 of them nationwide. Um, I, I like that move a lot better, but the real, the one that really, really pisses me off is the hospital one because that drives, it's, it's tr- like the medical system in the United States has become a bit of a business and patients are consumers become and, a bit of a business. Well, it's become a bit of a business in that patients are now consumers and they're shopping. And when they shop, that fucks a lot of people, including the healthcare system, the doctors, the nurses, the hospitals themselves. And it makes it all significantly worse. It's make marketing fake. It makes a lot of things fake. So for a long time, the two best hospitals on U.S. News and, and World Report were, uh, number one is MD Anderson, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and Hospital, which is in Houston. And number two is Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, which I believe is an affiliate of Cornell or something in New York City. And those two are legit. Like they are, MD Anderson is the greatest uh, life sciences accomplishment in world history. They are amazing. They are like, that's where Jim Allison is and all of you should know who it is. I'm not going to tell you who it is. You can Google him. All of that, like they're amazing. And Sloan Kettering is amazing too. But then when you're really splicing between, you know, UCLA is ranked the 17th, I'm just making this up, the 17th best hospital. So patients in LA are choosing to go to UCLA and that may or may not be the best option for them, but it's on the internet. So they do. So I'll tell you this anecdote. My grandmother-in-law had a stroke and her and my aunt-in-law wanted her to go to the Mayo Clinic in Florida instead of the local hospital. So Mayo Clinic was only 30 more minutes away. It was not that bad of a drive. You can go to either one. And my wife and I, who's a physician, had to tell her, like, it, she had a stroke. It's not, Mayo's not going to do anything that this other Jacksonville hospital wouldn't do for her. I promise. Like, it's, this, it's the same thing. But Mayo is Mayo. They have the brand. They're on the list. They get the patient. And oftentimes, like, that can really start to mess with people, especially when, like, your education is one thing. And people are starting to sniff that out. But healthcare, nobody knows a damn thing. It's scary. Yeah, well, the, the whole system is so complex, not only because like medicine, medicine is hard. Medicine is a hard art. I mean, there's a reason that people spend decades of their lives studying this stuff and specialize in such hyper local, like hyper specific components of the medical field. Like it's really hard to understand. And then when you layer that on top of what you said, it's becoming more of an industry. It's less like people are patients now and more like their clients mm-hmm. or their customers. So the, the shopping becomes really difficult. And then all the insurance restrictions. I, I mean, you point to me the Point me out somebody who knows all the ins, truly all the ins and outs of all their insurance coverage, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you somebody who works for an insurance company. Correct. Because, I mean, the, nobody else in the world understands that kind of stuff, and, and it's really complex, and, and I think there's a lot of hand-wings. It's like, oh, yeah, we need to fix American medical care, but nobody really knows how, and, and the people that do have ulterior motives, and, and, and it's all very complex, and that leads to people wanting to, like, find a simple way to compare different options it's yeah. it's a, it, it makes sense i mean from the point of view of somebody who wants the best for themselves the best for others like yeah okay a rating list like that'll tell me which ones are good and which ones are bad right but when it comes to medical care i mean the stakes are really high and the at the end of the day like the results of your care is not going to be 
worse or better if you go to like a hospital with a lower number next to its name and a higher place on the rankings list, especially for emergencies like a stroke. I mean, the care that you receive is the care you receive. You're not, it's not like they, you know, they're like, oh yeah, we didn't tell the doctors at this hospital about this secret medical technique to save lives. Right. They won't know. So the patients better not find like, no, they're going to care for you. And if they need to refer you to, to, to a specialist or somewhere else, some other institution with more or better resources, then they're going to do that. But the, the ratings driving that kind of decision-making makes sense because it's, it's so complicated, but it could also have disastrous consequences because people might be using the wrong metrics or might be using biased metrics to make a personal and highly consequential decision. Right, and that's that's in the micro level. At the macro level, the real risk here is that people stop going to hospitals in certain metropolitan areas, and then those hospitals close, and then no one... And that's happening right now in Philadelphia. Hahnemann Hospital, which was a staple of the American healthcare system for centuries, centuries... Wow. Um, closed because it, it, it got a kind of a bad reputation. It got outmarketed by the other two major hospital systems in the city, the University of Pennsylvania, an Ivy League school, and Jefferson, the biggest medical school in the world, um, which makes a ton of sense. But those patients still need to go somewhere. So now they're inundating these other two hospitals. A lot of them don't have insurance and whatnot. So they're, they're, they're catching all of the, the workload that was at this other hospital. But they, Hahnemann lost the business part of this. They lost yes. the, the brand recognition. They're not an Ivy League institution. Right, they're a completely no. different thing. So as a result of that, they're they're getting screwed by this because patients don't want to go there, and then they don't get money, and then they don't get donations, and they don't get funding, and it just spirals downhill. And the patients, like you, you, you have no real idea which one's going to be better uh, for whatever thing you want. And I, like a, a peek behind the curtain for me is that if I were in an auto accident or if I were shot in Philadelphia, I would want to go across the bridge to Cooper. Um, which is where my wife trained. They have some of the best trauma surgeons on planet Earth. It's where our military goes to see uh, gunshot wounds for the field. They're in Flint, Michigan. They and that's you know comments nice. on society, I suppose. But those surgeons and those doctors, and not to say the pen isn't great. They're great. Temple's great. Jefferson's great. But Cooper is like the the goat. The people who wrote the books are still practicing there. You wouldn't see that. They wouldn't win the marketing fight. No. Yeah. So there's, there's this old engineering maxim that I like to break out every once in a while. You know, anybody who's doing any kind of analysis ought to keep this in mind. All models are wrong, (laughs) but some are useful. I mean, there's no, there's no exact physical model for how the universe works. I mean, there are going to be details that, that don't get incorporated there. Nobody's level of understanding is exactly perfect, but there are some models that give you the enough information to make a good decision or to give you a clear understanding or to allow you to, I don't know, innovate based on what you know, the model of ratings and rankings, I think is one that should be approached with a healthy dose of skepticism, whether it's low level stuff, like utterly meaningless stuff like college football or like potentially life and death stuff like hospital rankings. I mean, you should understand that the people who are making those lists, they probably do have some level of expertise. They probably do have a lot more information, maybe even more information than you could come across yourself. But at the end of the day, the system is biased. And this model is not an exact objective comparison of like, this hospital will give you a better result than that hospital. This football team will always beat this other football team in a contest. Like, that's not what the ratings are for. in, In some cases, they're there to drive discussion. In other cases, they're there to make people money. And I think understanding what those biases are and the the very, very low ceiling of value that a person can get out of subjective ratings, I think is worth keeping in mind when it comes to making kind of big decisions. Right. And I think I want to talk I, I want to talk now and switch a little bit to the people doing the ratings. Because U.S. News and World Report, for the most part, 
Uh, the one thing I, I, I think is not critical, but a pat on the back for them is that they oftentimes use a lot of data and metrics. Like this is not like journalists like ranking things. They look for numbers like, and things. They're like the Nate Silver of college <laughs> ranking systems. Yeah, look up Nate Silver. Exactly, like oh analytics nerd. So okay. it, yeah, they're like that. But other ratings and review systems are not like that. They just take journalists who consider themselves experts like college football, and then they all vote on things or review things, and that creates a metric. Let's talk about Rotten Tomatoes and the Michelin star. So Rotten Ooh. Tomatoes and an article written in the LA Times that how Hollywood came to fear Rotten Tomatoes, Chris. And I, you'll notice about five years ago or so, you started to see Rotten, Toma- Rotten Tomatoes ratings, the tomato meter, certified fresh and shit, show up on movie trailers because it matters so yes. much. Many sites have done things like Rotten Tomato has done. IMDB does shit like Rotten Tomatoes have done. But because they branded so well and because they had such good, they were so reliable at predicting movies that would be good, now people are obsessed with them and we don't even know any of it. And how many times you watch a movie and it's like a 60 or a 50 on Rotten Tomatoes and you're like, I'm actually kind of offended that I enjoyed this now. Like You kind of fucked this up for me. Yeah, oh, all, all all the time, and like they have like the they have the audience score, the tomato mm. meter, and then they have the critic score. So it's like people whose entire lives, like their careers, are based on understanding how film works. Like a lot of times, those scores kind of are, match up. A lot of times, they're really similar. Sometimes they're very very different. Right, and that so that's a matter of taste. So like right away, that gives you a good indication of whether something is like kind of off. If something is like yeah. basic, but it appeals to popular people, Marvel movies are a good example of that. Uh, you know, Martin Scorsese described them as like not cinema but they're wildly popular people really love them uh side note to all the marvel people out there i saw recently uh, an article i think it was at a hollywood reporter that said that uh, marvel is considering kind of redrawing the uh, the the map for its phase five and six because uh, they focus too much on quantity of material and not enough on quality mm. so there's hope for us out there but the point is that the the tomato meter is like it's an objective system that allows people to consume media and give their opinions on that media and people's crappy opinions can sometimes drive like the success or failure of box office films and in turn whether people are likely to like find something they enjoy or are likely to uh, miss it and it allows for room for personal vendetta and bias too like if you're a college football reporter or a movie critic and you don't like Quentin Tarantino because he's a douchebag to you then you're going to like give him a couple notches down then all of a sudden the tomato meter's got a Quentin Tarantino film at 86% and me as an audience member is confused like is this off like because he should be in the night what are we what the fuck are we doing here now this company this website this, this this conglomerate of reviewers kind of has a chokehold on the industry where if they say it's not good as a group, then they can just say it's not good as a group and everybody gets confused. So Michelin stars have become a similar thing. So if you don't know about Michelin stars, we all pretend to know it's a four-star restaurant. Okay, there's only three stars in Michelin stars. <laughs> It's not. It's not the same as the hotel system. Yeah, it's like yeah. like the uh, like the scale for hurricanes only goes up to five, but mm-hmm. the Richter scale goes up to t- like you're not comparing the same thing, right. to your dog. It's literally food to hotels. So uh, yes. Michelin is the company is the French like auto tire company. They they created like uh, travel books and stuff for Europe of like where to go, and then they they developed this review system. It was a huge success in like the 20s or 30s or something, and then they started to rank the restaurants. So the stars have a very specific meaning, and I don't remember exactly, but it's something along the lines of a one star review is worth like an hour drive, like out of your way. Oh. A two-star review is like a, like a uh, something like further, like two hours, four hours, like it's further away. A three-star, Mich- a Michelin three-star restaurant is worth going to the, re- like the trip, the purpose of the trip is the restaurant, right? So like the, wow. that's, that's how this is meant to be. 
Okay. Um, huge. Didn't know that. The, the reviewers are, they're culinary experts. Most of them have to have gone to culinary school. They have to take training. Like they are expert food people, like probably as good or better than a lot of people that you would see on like food network and stuff. Like they are experts. I don't know how much mm. they get paid, but I do know that they have to book a reservation. A they have to eat by themselves. It has to be between specific times of day. So it has to be like, if they're going to do dinner, it has to be, I, I don't remember the rules, but it's like between six and 10 or something. Like they can't do it on either end of the spectrum. They're not allowed to drink. They have to order Whoa. specific things. Right. It's oh, like they're, they're for the food and they're reviewing the food. Like I'm sure that if you're, you know, in, in fine dining, it wouldn't be hard to pick one of these people out, honestly, because like super suspicious. But well, uh, so uh, I, guys, I don't really care for Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> uh, I'm not. I'm not talking about anything in the discourse. So I'm not talking about any online stuff. I think I've just read too many Malcolm Gladwell books to know that. Like, I, I think there's a ceiling to what his quality of analysis is. But that said, in the book uh, Blink, I think it was mm -hmm. talked about this like snap, quick decision making, and he said, you know, like this, this go with your gut instinct. That's not really true unless you're kind of an expert. And yeah. one of the examples he had was like he had lunch with these two these two food critics and and he said they were both just like geniuses when it came to food, but he, he you know we met up for like a normal lunch. We you know the the two of them told me about how they got into doing food criticism and blah right. blah blah. And he's like they weren't really paying attention to like the quality of the meal. And he's like, for me, it was one of the best meals I've ever had in my life. But for them, it was like kind of standard fare. And they were just like, they were just like having a casual conversation and they would just like describe food with the most lucid, like salient analysis that he had ever heard anybody talk about anything with. And uh, they were doing it so casually and it's because they were like true, no shit right. food experts. They knew exactly what they were talking about. And they had done so much of that work that they were able to just like call to mind a judgment. And it was pretty much right. Yeah, no, that's, and that's, you know, that's, that comes with training and expertise and like their ability. Like, yeah, we, we talk about in that in chess, chess is a great way to kind of analyze genius. I think um, just a great, like, it's a great tool for people like us to kind of discuss things like that. So chess is very, very much the same kind of vibe, but so these, these geniuses rate it, right? And then you give a restaurant a rating and reviews. So like they're only, it's only achievable in four cities in the U.S. Like it's a very intense system. And those four cities are uh, New York, Chicago, D.C., and San Francisco, L.A. and Philly, I guess, Miami as well are trying. We'll see what happens. But the chefs in D.C. Mm, uh, yeah, you can get a Michelin star in D.C., which is new. It only used to be New York and San Francisco. Then Chicago was in addition. Then D.C. was in addition, I think. But Speaking of biases creating the rankings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, who paid for that? Um, so, so you could get these stars, and chefs have talked, spoken often that once you have it, it sucks. The pressure from people traveling all over there, like you get more business, but the pressure, if you, if you do fine dining, you're not going to make a ton of money. You might, but more likely you'll make way more money owning 10 McDonald's for sure. So they, yep. they do this because they love it. It's a quality, it's a life calling. And then, you, you know, maybe sell some cookbooks and get famous and, and maybe you sell a line of wine or something and that's how you make and, your money. And, and anybody that's like, that's struggling to understand this, watch The Bear. Yeah. Great, great show. What, what is great that? Show. Is a, that's a Hulu. Hulu, right? Hulu. Yeah. W yeah. Watch the bear. It's exactly you'll you'll get a feel for exactly what kind of like drives a fine dining. Yeah, chef, they I love think. that. It's 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 a, it's very much like a calling and a craft. Like they they love that shit. So regardless, they they uh, they get these stars. Like the worst star to get is two star because the pressure becomes become a three star, and then you could lose it and be a one star. We're like the result is you're a fucking Michelin star restaurant, but you're like what the hell? There have been many chefs and their podcasts about this, like Freakonomics, and I think um, Stubby Chanel did an episode where these chefs are like, we lost our star and it was awesome. 
Like we just went back to be in a restaurant and it was like, <laughs> this is great. Cause then you still have the Google ability of this and nobody knows if you have the star, like nobody checks it. Um, I know that some people with a lot of money like to go to these Michelin star restaurants and these are experts and they put this, they, they do it out of the kindness of their heart. And like, these are experts reviewing things from Michelin. It's a whole system, but these chefs are like, this is the sword of Damocles. That's a Greek reference. Um, wow. Very good. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's hanging over their heads and they're like, this, I don't love the pressure of this. This is a, such a great accomplishment, but now we have to run this restaurant and maintain this absurd quality or go up or like, what do you do when you're a three star? Like people have been like mentally unwell and like suicidal over this because it's, it's just too much to be ranked this high. And this is an expert ranking that everybody kind of agrees with. It seems it appears to be on its face. I'm sure that there's fraud, there's fraud everywhere, not a bullshit system, but they don't want to do it. And so like they, a lot of restaurants, well now restaurants are like, it's an accomplishment. They're not pulling out, but we do have that same thing happening with the U.S. News and World Report with college rankings with law schools. Harvard and Yale just this year told the organization to fuck off. Did they? They did. They're not participating anymore. They might come back. They're done. So Yale, there are two law schools in America, Yale and not Yale. That, that's where the U.S. Supreme <laughs> Court went to school. Like, for real. That that's, law school runs the American legal system and has for centuries. Uh, Harvard's right there, but like Yale is in a league of their own. Um, a lot of people were critical, wow. like, oh, you're scared of losing that number one shit, huh? Like, you're scared. And then Harvard joined them, and they're like, oops. I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> yeah. I think they both were like, we don't want to deal with this anymore. Like, your rankings mean nothing to us. Our institution is older than, like, huge portions of the American version of the language. So, so yeah. like, go away. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't blame them for, for doing that. It, 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 this kind of, like, I kind of calls to mind, like, the Black Friday episode, mm-hmm. uh, which we just re-released uh, a couple of weeks ago, where stores kind of figure out like, well, okay, you know, keeping up with the Joneses may not be all it's cracked up to be. Uh, <laughs> it, it, might, it might be better off for us to like give our employees the day off, not yeah. be open or not open absurdly early yeah. and not start doing Black Friday deals in like October. <laughs> it, it, it might be better for us to actually yes. like step away from this and, and not just in terms of quality of, of like employees' lives or, or whatever else, but it might also just be better for business at the end of the day. Like if you're, if you're a slave to this notion that you have to be the best, that you have to be at the top of the list, you have to continually climb the rankings or you become irrelevant. I think that could really drive people to, to not only burn out, but to make poor decisions along the way and, and worsen the overall quality of the experience. Like, you know, I, I could very easily imagine a very uptight chef who spends a lot of time pouring over meticulous details spending hours now it gets it's a calling it's not just right. a job yep you know they don't they don't put that kind of stuff away at, at, when they go home at night so you know the pressure of trying to maintain or even gain another star i mean that that's just got to be brutal and so for uh, for universities like harvard and yale for chefs that are thrilled to get rid of their of their michelin the yoke of the michelin star and stop being victims of their own success i think paying more attention to doing what they do well. They're improving their core competency rather than being a slave to some subjective rating system. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important thing to do. It's, 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 it's a good skill, frankly. And yep. I think it's one that we all uh, would probably do well to practice. Yeah. And if you see, if you see some sort of list, you get to ask yourself like who benefits from being in the top five here? Like, is it, yeah. is it really that like we lists, our obsession with lists are something that I think that humanity evolving away from might be, um, might be something enjoyable. That being said, Chris, uh, give us a five-star rating and review, please. Yes, we need the five-star rating. Otherwise, we're not going to become the best game theory podcast yeah, right. of all languages run by white guys in their 30s. <laughs> please put the Sword of Damocles over my head. That would be great. Live for the thrill. You know, I think Notre Dame is a little overrated, Chris. We're already starting this, huh? Mm. 
Who's, who do they got in the bowl? Who cares? I don't. No. 